open up our Bibles to chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to him saying, This man, if he knew, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing which to repay him, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom forgave, he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful for how your spirit moves and upon our lives, Lord. We pray now as we get into your word that you would disempower our pastor, that he would speak, that your word would fall upon each of us, Lord, that your spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and an under, a heart to understand what you're doing in our lives, Lord, through this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, uh, this morning we get to take a look at <clears throat> Forgiveness Illustrated. And it's such a great example, such a great story. Such a, as, as Luke is pinning this for us, you know, we, we, we want to again put ourselves into the hands of Luke. He's telling us these stories for a reason, right? It's, he's not trying to paint for us the chronology here is everything Jesus did in his life. He's showing us. He's teaching us. He's giving us illustration. One of the things we've kind of been dwelling on and parking on, and hopefully you can begin to see it, is that man for so long, up until the time of Christ, was taught that the unclean will make you unclean. So the clean should not be touching the unclean. Stay away. Stay away. If you're trying to live your life in a certain way, you want to stay away from sin because sin infects. And that's true for us, isn't it? 
That never stops being true, guys. Sin infects. Which of us doesn't sin? Sin infects us all and affects us all. But then Jesus came. And he showed us something else. He showed us that he could touch the unclean and make them clean. That never happened before. He would reach out and touch the dead. What would happen? They rise. He'd reach out and touch the blind. What would happen? They see. He'd reach out and touch the lame. What would happen? They walk. We get ourselves all focused on the miracle, and then we, making ourselves in the middle of the story, want to go and do those miracles, and we miss the illustration of the miracle. What is the illustration? You're broken, and Jesus has the ability to make you whole. If you were broken, if you were blind, lame, a leper, or dead, you could not worship God. You were kept from the temple and entrance because something separated you from him. So Jesus comes and he touches all of those things. And we get our focus on, oh, that's it. We, we, we need that healing part. But what he's showing us is something that's wrong with all of us. A blind man, a lame man, a dead man, I can see what's wrong with them. But maybe I'm not so good at seeing that I'm blind that I'm lame, and that I'm dead. Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, right? But we don't always know it. We don't always know it. So Jesus came and he touched and he healed and he showed us that he is able to take the dead and make them live. He's able to take those who are separated from God and he's able to bring them into a relationship where they can now again pursue the Lord. And all of this, I think, is an illustration, a call for us. Pay attention, look at what Jesus can do, because what he can do for them, he can do for you. And so we want to have eyes, we want to have ears willing to hear and to see. And there's several things we're going to see out of this, this section. We're going to see the actions of a, of a sinful woman, right? We're going to see her actions, we're going to see then the attitude of a self-righteous uh, Pharisee. Hopefully we don't see ourselves there. Then we're going to see the answer of Jesus, right? He's going to respond. He's going to make application to both of them. And then ultimately he's going to say he has the ability to forgive sins. Which is what it's all about. That is what healing illustrates. That Jesus as God is able to restore us to a relationship with God. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to glean from what he says. Now, maybe for you guys, I don't know, sometimes we have, uh, we struggle with some concepts. Here's one. Jesus is eating with the Pharisees. Did you catch that? He's eating with the Pharisees. Man, they spent a lot of time uh, fighting, didn't they? Arguing. Three times in the Gospel of Luke, it's going to say Jesus went to eat with the Pharisees. When they invited him, he came. A lot of times when they invited him, maybe it was for a trap. I don't know. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. But Jesus went. He ate with the Pharisees. The next thing I want you to get is the Pharisee, that the head of the household, would have had this meal in his courtyard. Okay? You guys all tracking with me? Probably not in his house, but at his house. And outside there had been a courtyard. He would have had the table set out there, the couches. They don't sit at a table like we do. 
they would have uh, laid at a table, which actually, I want to try Thanksgiving that way. Because everything about the way we eat Thanksgiving restricts my ability to finish all that stuffing. That is No? Sorry. I digress. So, they have a couch, and the guy for whom, the, uh, at the house, he would have probably reclined on his right arm, which would have had him facing to the left. And the seat of honor would have been at the left side. So on the left side, that's where Jesus would have been, reclining on his left arm. So I just want you to picture it. You have the Pharisee and Jesus on a couch at a table. People all around the table, right? There's lots of people there. Disciples are there. Other guys are there. They're all seated. Or they're all reclining on the couch. Jesus' feet are back away from the table, his head toward the table, and he's looking at Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee is looking at him. They're having conversation, right? Like we would have around the table. I want you to see that picture because sometimes we struggle with how does all this stuff happen? How can these things occur? It seems a little weird that this lady comes busting into the house. Well, not so weird if it's in the courtyard. Right? And the people would have known, Jesus is over at Simon the Pharisee's house. He's going to have dinner with them. You want to watch? Yeah, it was a spectator event. So people would come and they would, it was not uncommon for them to be gathered around the table just to listen to the conversation. To listen to what's going on. So, so people are probably gathered there. And we look at this woman who comes and, and church, the church has for, I don't know, let's call it 2,000 years, tried to identify this. Let me, let me, let me make your life a whole lot easier. Okay? How about we do this? How about we just take the story the way the Bible tells it to us? What if we don't try to figure out who she is? We just listen. Right? Because people say this is Mary Magdalene, or maybe this is Mary Bethany. There are similar stories, right, of Jesus being anointed, but this one's different. He's not being anointed on his head. Where is he being anointed? On his feet. He's at Simon the Pharisee's house. This is a different place. This is a different story. So we should just let the Bible tell us the story, right? The Bible says that all the things that Jesus did, if they wrote them all, all the books in all the libraries of all the world couldn't contain them all. That, by the way, is hyperbole. So don't start thinking Jesus did so many things nobody could have ever wrote them down. What is he saying? He's simply telling you this. We didn't write it all down. We didn't tell you every story, but there's a lot of things Jesus did. Is there room for Jesus to be anointed more than once? Why not? Three years he's gone around ministering. Why not? So here we have this story. Now what's the point? What's the purpose of this story? We want to be introduced to this woman. Look at it. It says in verse 36, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at the, ter- at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask, Avointment. There's a lot of things interesting about this woman. First thing we want to look at, look what she does. She doesn't allow her reputation to keep her from coming to Jesus. You notice her reputation? A woman who was what? A sinner. So that means everybody knows she's a sinner. Nobody's wondering. Nobody's thinking, I wonder if that, that lady's a sinner. Nope, she's a sinner. Yeah? There's 
probably one occupation that really sticks out where people would make that kind of call, right? So probably she was a prostitute. And everybody in the town knew she was a sinner. Now everybody who called her a sinner was probably a sinner too, right? Some of them had maybe participated and that's why they were sinners. But nonetheless, they looked at her. This is one of the issues with men, with you and I. We can always see someone else's sin. We can always see someone else's brokenness. Can you see your own? That's what this story is all about. Can you see your need for a Savior? Can you see that you are broken, that you are a sinner? Yeah, everybody in town knew she was. Including Jesus. So it says, a woman who was a sinner... Who, who, uh, a woman who was a sinner. I just love how it says, I can't get, I, I never get tired of saying it. Who was a sinner? Who was a sinner? Who was a sinner? That means, I think she had a, an interaction with Jesus. A lot of times there is, uh, gosh, I don't want to get into textual critical things, so I won't. But I'm going to anyway. Well, there's a story in the Bible. You guys, you guys have heard of it. It's in the Gospel of John. I'm not sure it belongs in the Gospel of John. I kind of think maybe it belongs in Luke. Well, I, I get the right to think whatever I want, don't I? I, I? I probably can't prove it. But let me tell you the story. The story is a woman caught in the act of adultery. And when all her accusers leave, you guys know the story, right? When all her accusers leave, remember they all come and they say, Lord, this woman's caught in the act of adultery. The law says we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus stoops down and writes in the ground. Then at the end of the story, all the accusers leave. Jesus says, he who is without sin, do what? Cast the first stone and everybody walks away. Now the only one without sin was still there. Right? And so he asks her, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none but you, Lord. And he says this, neither do I condemn you. What did he tell her? Go sin no more. I don't know. I can't prove it. A lot of people argue over that story in the Bible, whether or not, where it ought to be, how it ought to be. That's That's not as important as this. Now you have a woman we don't really know anything else about, except that somewhere she had had an interaction with Jesus. And somewhere in that interaction with Jesus, she had felt, maybe for the first time in her life, forgiven. And she heard Jesus is at Simon the Pharisee's house. And she went and got the most priceless thing she had. This alabaster flask of of ointment, of perfume. And she went and got that and she said, I want to anoint this on Jesus. Now in her mind, maybe there's a lot of ways this was going to go. You know, you guys ever got yourself into something and then about in the middle of it, you, you hadn't thought it all through yet? Right? Are you guys with me? So, so similar, right? She's, she, she comes, everybody knows who she is, everybody understands who she is. I don't know if she is that, that woman or not. I'm just saying, the Bible doesn't tell us and I don't see any reason why it couldn't be. So he comes, she comes down to him, she, she is known as a sinner, and the Bible says, in verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, now remember, he's on a couch, head toward the table, talking with Simon, right, Simon talking with Jesus, 
His feet are back here. It's open. It's in the house, but it's open courtyard. She comes walking in, and she's standing behind him. Now, Jesus is looking at, at, at Simon the Pharisee, and I'm, I'm sure Jesus knows she's there. I'm sure Jesus knows this event's about to happen. And as she stands there, she's overwhelmed at the forgiveness that she had received, the grace that she had received from Jesus. She may not have it all put together yet. But she's overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy and the compassion that he had shown her. And she just begins to weep. Has that ever happened to you guys? Because, you know, one of the things, one of the important things I think for us to realize is that when the Holy Spirit's moving in our life, he will make us weep. I never cried so much since I got saved. I got saved. I'm a big, blubbering baby. I cry all the time. Amazing. Maybe you'll catch me. Sometimes we'll do worship, and I, I'm thinking about the words, and all of a sudden I can't sing them no more because I'm crying, and crying and singing is not singing anymore. It's something else. So, <laughs> so some of you might say, "Well, you haven't really been singing all this time." But, yeah. <clears throat> anyways, as we, it just comes on us. So this woman is overwhelmed, right? She's overwhelmed. By what Jesus did, she begins to weep. Now, I just want you to understand, that word for weep in verse 38 is the same word for what Jesus did when he came and looked at Jerusalem. When the Bible says, Jesus came and he saw Jerusalem and he wept. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've wanted to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. So here this woman is, is weeping. Same sense, same, same context. Now, I don't think she's in anguish. I don't think she's wailing. I think it's somewhat quiet because the conversation at the table is still happening, right? But Simon, I want you to get, Simon can see her. He knows who she is. He's probably thinking, what in the world is she doing here? Where's the guy who's supposed to be watching the gate? Who let her in here? Right? All these thoughts are, are going through his mind as he sees this woman beginning to, to weep. The scripture says she was weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, the Bible tells that Jesus hadn't washed his feet when he had come in to the house. So as he's gathered there, there's dust all over his feet. She's standing behind him as she cries, her tears fall down. And she looks at, at his feet and she notices the dirt now, right? Because her tears are, are mixing together with the dust on his feet. And maybe for a minute she, she panics. Oh my gosh. And so she says, I, I've, got to, I've got to do something. I've, I've got, to, I've got to, to wipe this off. Well, she don't have a towel. She don't have a, a rag with her. And so it says that she wiped them with the hair of her head. And then she kissed his feet and anointed him with that ointment. She pours out the alabaster flask on his feet. For a woman in that culture, her hair was everything. Everything. The glory of the woman was the, the length of her hair. And so she has her hair and it's all up and it's something that she would have treasured and tried to protect. But that which... 
the world would have said was so valuable to her was nothing more than a rag. In the presence of the one who had forgiven her, had given her grace. So she lets down her hair. It's all she's got. And she wipes his dirty feet with the tears that she cried and with her hair. And while she's there, she loves him so much, so intently is her affection toward him, that she, as her head's down there, she just kisses his feet. And then she remembers what she came there for. And she took the alabaster flask, the greatest treasure she had, and she poured it out on his feet. And while all this is going on, Simon is disgusted. Simon is disgusted. He, he can't believe that, that Jesus would allow such a thing to take place. In fact, in verse 39, look what it says. It says, now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if this guy was really godly, then he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. If he was really godly, he'd stay away. If he was really godly, he wouldn't let her touch him. Do you guys understand what it was that God came for? Scripture says he came for sinners. He came for them. That's the point. Look, if you're not a sinner, God can't help you. Because you don't know you need Him. You're still busy looking at the outsides of other people and saying, they need God, they need God, they need God, but I'm good. I'm good. As long as that's going to be your mirror, as long as that's going to be your judgment, then your answer will be correct. You don't need God. God didn't die for you. There's nothing God can give you. Until you come to the accurate depiction of what scripture says you are because scripture says we're all broken we're all lame we're all blind we're all separated from god simon the pharisee couldn't tell he knew she was and he's beginning to wonder about jesus because he shouldn't be letting her touch his feet this illustration of forgiveness being played out before us. So then Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I got something to say to you. So Simon says, Speak, Lord. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them would love him more? So Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, You have judged rightly. In the story that Jesus tells, several things I want you to see. One, everyone's a debtor. you catch it? The only question is about how much you owe. But everyone's a debtor. In the story, we are all debtors. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, What then? 
Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. How many is all? Huh, funny how that is. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How many times have we maybe said ourselves, you know, I'm just trying to balance the scales, do more good than bad. What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say that's even possible? Nobody is good. Everyone is stained by sin. All of us. Guilty. In Romans chapter 3 verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. How many mouths? Every. That's the same as all, isn't it? Every mouth will be stopped and the whole world. Is that count? Call, is that about everybody? The whole world? And the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's everybody. All of us. Romans 3.23 sums it up kind of nice, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Everybody's guilty. Sometimes we, we can struggle with the concept of original sin. You may struggle with my concept of original sin. We'll see. I'm about to tell you what it is. But the Bible says in Romans 5, verse 12, says that just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam fell in the garden, was the beginning of the corruption of men. There's a lot of corruption of man that happened from Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 8, Genesis chapter 10. There's no shortage of corruption. There's no shortage of rebellion against God, right? You guys know the flood. We've got the sons of God event. We've got a variety of things. In those first 11 chapters of Genesis, corruption, 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 corruption. And a lot of times we, we have this attitude. It's a bad attitude. We have this attitude where we say, man, I, I really wish that, uh, that Adam wouldn't have done that. If Adam wouldn't have done that, we'd, be all, we'd all be okay. Probably not. But here's what the Word of God says. Adam fell and sin entered. Right? So now sin is part of our environment. And through sin, something else came. What came? Death. Death came. Sin came. And then the scripture says this. And death passed to every man. Because what? All sinned. It did not say because Adam sinned. It said what? All sinned. What is that? What's the difference? Okay, here's what I'm telling you. Adam's sin brought mortality. Your sin is what you're paying for. What? 
Yeah, in Ezekiel, there's this, this section where God says to the prophet Ezekiel, Stop saying this parable that my father ate sour grapes and my teeth fell out. God said through the prophet Ezekiel, You will die for your sin. It's not someone else's sin that you're guilty of. You're guilty of yours. Not somebody else's. Not something that has been imputed. Imputed. What has been imputed to you is death. You got death from Adam. You're going to die. Death entered into the equation. And death entered into the equation because sin became a part of our environment. And sin becoming a part of our environment meant that we started to do what? Sin. Why? Because Adam was so bad? No, because I am. The Bible says the heart of men is the wickedest thing on the planet. And we have a hard time buying that. That's somebody else's heart. That's that guy who went into the school. That's the guy who did this horrible thing. That's the guy who did that horrible thing. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it's your heart. Your heart is no different than his. The same wickedness is in you. And Jesus is the one that can touch you and make you clean. We're sinners. We sin. And if I was not a believer and I stood before the Lord God Almighty, I will be judged not for Adam's sin. For whose? Mine. I'll be judged for my own. In fact, Romans says like this, even if you don't know there is a law, you'll be judged by your conscience. You know how that works? Have you ever done something that your conscience told you was wrong? You just said, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do it. And you did it anyway. Anybody? Oh, yeah. So we're all nodding our head. So our conscience condemns us. You stand before God and God says to you, have you ever done something your conscience told you was wrong? Forget about the law. Forget about the Ten Commandments. Forget about everything. Have you ever done anything you knew was wrong in your own heart? You're the judge. Yeah. Then God will say, guilty. That's why the Bible says everyone's guilty. Whether you know the word or you don't know the word, we all need a savior. Simon the Pharisee, you don't get it. He can see other people's problems, but he can't see his own. You guys with me? He can see her because she's such a vile person. She's such a, 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 a just horrible i mean don't even walk by that side of the street that she's on stay away from her because because she's just bad news and we all have people we see that way it's so easy to see their sin but when god looks at us we're all on the same side of the scale we're all debtors we all owe a debt i can't pay Here's what I want you to understand. Why can't you pay it? Because you're mortal. The only person who can pay your debt is one who is immortal. The only one who can pay your debt is one who can't die. Why? Because the Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. So all I'm getting is my just do we're all gonna die right 
Yeah, bar, bar, barring the miracle that Christ returns, right, in our lifetime. Praise God. Hope tomorrow. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I hope. But otherwise, we're all going to die. We're all mortal. You can't pay for your sin. You can't pay the debt. It takes one who's immortal. One who can't die. To come. And die the death of everyone. We can't even begin to fathom what the cross meant to Christ. What it looked like through the eyes of God. We can't even begin to fathom it. But he's the only one who could pay it. Who's the only one who could forgive the debt? Yeah, it was. It, listen to the story, right? A moneylender. Who could? Who could? They could. Either one of them pay? Neither one of them can pay. It's impossible. You cannot pay. We cannot pay our debt. Forgiveness is never based, however, on our ability to pay. It's based on His ability. You get it. Forgiveness is on, not on my ability to be good. Forgiveness is not on my ability to, to change my life and become a better person. It is based on His ability to do it for me. His ability to work in me. It's all best based on Him. Think about the story that Jesus told. Let's take a look at it. In Luke chapter 18, we'll jump ahead. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He said, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others like they were not, treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get. He accounts to the Lord all of the good things he does. Now, we just discussed that. How many of them are good? Okay. But the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. That one went to his house forgiven. He was forgiven. Why? Because he humbled himself in the sight of the Lord. And he acknowledged his need. I need you. I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't know for how long people have got this crazy idea that, that uh, preachers are perfect. You guys don't have that idea because you know me. But some people have this idea. People in, in ministry or, or people who teach the word, you know, or... And that's not something new. That's something that's been perpetuated throughout time. And we think somehow we reach a place of sinless perfection. But we don't. You should know you don't. As soon as you think you've reached a place of sinless perfection, that's called pride. And it's one of seven things God hates. Which I would say then is sin. We've got to start over. Right? What was the tax collector's deal? Everybody thought he's a dirtbag. Everybody hated his guts. Everybody knew he was a sinner. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He just fell on his knees before the Lord and he beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm broken. Now, think back to all the healings Jesus ever did. The lepers who came up to the Lord on their knees. Oh, Lord God, 
If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus would reach out and touch him. How many blind called out, Lord, I can't see. And Jesus reached out and touched him. How many dead who couldn't say anything and were definitely in need of a Savior that Jesus reached out and touched and raised from the dead. Every one of them illustrates the truth that God is the one who is able to forgive our sin and help us have a right relationship with God. That's why Jesus will say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man comes to the Father except by me. Nobody gets there. We, we all come through Jesus Christ. Man, forgiveness is not based on my ability to do something. It's His. Christ did it. It's in Christ alone we place our hope. And all of this, guys, is what's behind our love for Him. That's the point of the story, right? If you don't love God, you don't know how bad you are. If you don't love God, you, you don't understand what He has forgiven you from. I'm thankful for my past. I'm thankful that I'm a knucklehead. I'm thankful that my life wasn't what people would have said was good. So I don't have a hard time with this. I don't struggle with the concept. I was a dead man. And Jesus made me alive. And so what is the response? We love Him. I can identify with a woman who would cry at His feet. Because one day I'm going to. Yeah, one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in the presence of God. The Word of God says that to, that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So one day I'm going to die and I'm going to stand before the Lord. Now, you guys think of how you're going to do it any way you want, but I am not standing long. I'm getting on my face as quick as I can. And I'm going to weep like a baby. The Bible says, I'm going to see the Lamb as though it had been slain. I'm going to see Jesus in His glory, bearing the only man-made things in heaven, right? Scars, marks, that was my sin. I'm the one who held the nail. It's me. And the Scripture says, I, I believe, the Scripture will tell us that as I'm laying there and I'm weeping at His feet, that He's going to lift me up. Because the Bible says, if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, He'll do what? Lift you up, right? So He's going to lift me up. And I hope, I hope I hear the words. I only get one life to live to get it. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into your Master's rest. But the Bible says he's going to do something. You pay attention. What's he going to do? It says, and then Jesus will wipe away every tear from my eyes. And we have this thing that says there's no tears in heaven. I don't, I don't know where we got that. The Bible's got lots of tears in heaven. <laughs> lots of times that God's going to wipe them all away. And then there will be a day with no more pain, no more sorrow. He's going to wipe those away. That moment I is the one moment I look forward to more than anything else in my life. That moment needs to be the, 
the impetus for the choices we make in our day. Is this choice get me to that moment? Is this choice getting me to that moment, that place where I'm going to get my one-on-one with Jesus, where He looks in my eyes, where I'm weeping and He tells me, well done. Does this get me there or not? If it don't, then let it die. Stop listening to the lies of the enemy who says, oh look, something shiny. Let it go. Let it go. He's the one. And that, that's how I want to express my love to Him. Right? I, I get the idea that there's, there's crowns, that there's going to be a judgment. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment of God. He's going, to, he's going to judge us for the things we've done for Him. There is a reward that will be received, which I believe I'm going to cast right back at His feet. Uh, and so I hope I, I hope I have something to throw down at His feet. But the thing I am living for is that one moment. Just that one. Me and Him. One on one. Just like this woman. And in that moment, I don't want to be proud. I want to be humble. In that moment, I don't want to try to pretend like I had it all together. Like I always did the right thing. Like I always said the right thing. Like I I was never a... Kathy told me I'm not supposed to say that no more. I'm... I don't. I lost the word for a minute. Um, I'm a knucklehead. Whatever. So I was going to say butthead. She said I can't say that no more. <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't do it now. But uh, <laughs> but I, I just I don't want to do that. Right? I want I want to be real. I don't want to be Simon the Pharisee. I don't want to be the guy who can always see what's wrong in everybody else, but doesn't recognize I'm looking at an outward expression of the inner me. You get what I mean? I mean, her sin was outside. I could see it, but nobody could see the one inside of me. Nobody could, can hear the things I think or the, see the things I want to do or to see the depths of which the depravity of my heart will, will, will fall. I don't want to do that. I want to recognize I'm that. I'm the lame person. I'm the dead person. I'm the blind person. I'm the leper. And I need Him. He's the one who makes me clean. Nothing else. Nothing else. I, I want to... It, with Jesus turned and looked at the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. So Jesus comes to a conclusion. Therefore I say, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. You don't try to pretend she's not a sinner. The one thing I love about Jesus is that sometimes we miss this. The world don't get it, right? The world thinks... Jesus was okay with everybody's sin. And the Bible never says he was okay with them. He was okay with them. He was not okay with their sin. He says, this woman, whose sins are many, she's forgiven. How do we know she's forgiven? Because she loves much. You get it? She 
loves much. The love didn't make her forgiven. The forgiveness happened before. Whatever her run-in with Christ was, whatever that looked like, whatever happened, she had had a previous experience with Him in which she felt the grace of God in her life. And now this is the expression of that in her life. The expression is she loves Him. She loves Him. She can't, she, there's not enough, there, there's nothing she wouldn't give. Nothing she wouldn't surrender. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. And then he says, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. What's the illustration? What's the application? What's he saying? Simon, you didn't, you don't love me. You don't love me because you don't think you need forgiven. You don't love me because you think you're a good person. Simon, you don't love me because you think your righteousness is going to get you to heaven. Simon, you think you've got it all together. You don't love me. She loves me. She knows she needs me. She has me. And you don't. That's an important picture to see. He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven much has responded. And then listen to what Jesus says in verse 48. So he said to her, this he does just to make everybody mad. I have to be careful because the Bible says, Let not many of you be teachers, for you'll fall under stricter condemnation. But I... I think Jesus can be sarcastic at times. So he looks at this woman and he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now what's going to happen to all the Pharisees? They're going to freak out. They're all going to freak out. He says, he looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. Then what's the next phrase? Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who thinks he can forgive sins? Jesus is just is, is exactly like the guy who was paralyzed. You remember, dropped through the roof. Jesus looks at him. Everybody's expecting him to, to heal him, of course. And he looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And everybody does the same thing. Oh, how you can't just walk around forgiving sins. Who are you? So Jesus makes it clear. Oh, you want to know who I am? Okay, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven and rise up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, watch. Son, rise up and walk. And he gets up and walks out. What did that illustrate? Yeah, uh, I'm God and you're not. I'm God, you're not. And he's forgiven. Why? Because he knows he needs... Do you know you need a Savior? Do you know you need Him? Do you know that what He has to give us is so incredible? Look at verse 50. Look at verse 50. And then He says to the woman, It's so vital. Your faith has saved you. Your faith. Who's her faith in? It's not faith in faith. Faith is not just the word believe. That doesn't mean anything. What do you believe in? 
Who do you believe in? Woman, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Whole world's looking for that. Got all kind of plans, all kind of procedures. Oh, we need to do this. We need to be more tolerant. If we're more tolerant, there'll be peace. Well, that's worked throughout history. Right? The reason it doesn't work is because we can't do it. In case you haven't noticed, the ones clamoring for tolerance are also in and of themselves intolerant. Why? They're broke, just like me. What do they need? A Savior. On a Savior who can change them from the inside out. And then when He says into their life, go in peace, there will be peace. We need to hear our Savior say those words to us, guys. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, listen to what it says. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You didn't do it. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You don't save yourself. Who saves you? Jesus does. Jesus does. I humble myself. That the, Jesus saves me. I beat my breast and declare the truth. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus saves me. Jesus does it. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Through Him, through Jesus. Who did the work? Jesus did. We have access. That means we can reach it. We can touch it. We have access by what? By faith. By trusting in Him. By, what, what does that look like? It looks like that tax collector on his knees. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what it looks like. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That gives us access to what? The grace of God. What's the grace of God? Forgiveness. Forgiveness of my sin. Forgiveness of your sin. And so we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's that moment when we'll see him. Galatians three twenty one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that all could that could give life, then righteousness would have been from the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Ah, the law is my mirror. The Word of God is my mirror. The Word of God shows me I'm like the tax collector. I'm like the prostitute. I'm like the leper. I'm like the lame. I'm like the blind. My sin may not be evident on the outside, but my sin is wicked and hateful on the inside. And all God is looking for from us is men and women who are willing to humble themselves before God. To go to their knees and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you know what God's answer is? Every single time, you're forgiven. Man. He is calling. 
He was calling the world, letting them know of the work that He was doing. He's calling us, letting us know, I hope, pray, that we can hear His voice. Amen? Why don't you stand with me let's pray. Father God, we thank You, we praise You, glorify You for this moment that we can come to you, Lord God. And God, I just uh, I just want to take a moment this morning just to provide an opportunity, Lord, as we pray, as we seek your face, as we look to you. God, by your Spirit, move in the heart of men and women who maybe are Simon the Pharisee. God, move in the hearts of men and women who, who maybe think their sin is too great. Help them recognize through the illustration in your word today, God, that you are able, you are able to save. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, if we confess the Lord Jesus with our mouth, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If I believe, if I confess the Lord Jesus, I drop to my knees and I and I can't even lift my eyes to Him, and I just know I'm separated from God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm declaring His sovereignty over me. You are my God and King. And I believe in You. I trust in You. My hope is in You. Everything good that ever entered into my life has come through You. And the best is yet to be. God, as we come to you just in an attitude of worship, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move and work in the hearts and minds of people this morning, Lord God. And God, I just pray, Lord, that they hear you call them. And as they hear you call them, they come. I'm going to ask this morning for the elders and their wives who are available to come on up front, the prayer counselors, just come on up front right now. And as we, as we just continue in a spirit of prayer, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would do a work. God, do a work. I pray, Lord, that the hearts of men today would bow themselves in humility to God. And that they would hear this phrase spoken to their heart by you, Lord Jesus, as they come in obedience. That they would hear this phrase, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. God be glorified and magnified. And as we worship, Lord, I pray that they will come in Jesus' name. Amen.